Good morning, church family. That was pretty good. Those of you who know me, you know I'm going to ask you to do it again. Good morning, church family. And now I know you're here. Perfect, and I'm glad for that. It's a privilege for me to be here again at the HP campus. It's a privilege for me to have the ability to open up God's Word with you and discern this morning how it is we can take today's bottom line and apply it to our lives so that we can go and do something with God's Word. That's a passion of mine. You're going to find it as a heartbeat behind every time I have the privilege of opening the Bible with you. For those of you who might be new to the HB campus or maybe in the future you're listening on a recording kind of going through the Bottom Line series, my name is Stephen Ganshaw and I have the distinct privilege of serving Bethel as the pastor of counseling. So you'll note this morning and any time that I'm here, there's going to be that heavy application bend, heavy counseling principles bend to everything that we're going to talk about and today will be no different, though today I will confess in advance, this is very much the deep end of the theological pool And we're going to dive deep into one verse and draw a ton of stuff out of it. I want to compliment Daniel and his team, too, because as I thought about the text this morning and they put music together, we we collaborate a little bit, but not an overwhelming amount. And I think what impressed me this morning so much is every song that we sang had a truth about God. And this morning, as we get into Deuteronomy chapter 6, We're going to look at truths about God. So what I'm going to invite you to do right now is not go to Deuteronomy 6, but Deuteronomy 5. And we're going to launch right into God's Word together. And what I'm going to do is kind of give you the lay of the land a little bit. It doesn't matter if you're using a phone. It doesn't matter if you're using a mobile device. I'm preaching off a tablet. If you've got a Bible, awesome. I just want you to be in it. I want you to be looking at it. We're going to read through some things together. I think kind of a second preliminary note that I want to note to us, I was here just a couple of weeks ago, and Scott and I together, two weeks in a row, we kind of got to tag team the greatest commandment in the Bible. Love the Lord your God with everything that you have and all of who you are, and then love your neighbor as yourself. And that was a neat thing because together, he and I, we, we jumped into Deuteronomy. We jumped back to Leviticus. We jumped up to the teaching of Jesus and elsewhere. And we kind of created this intact idea. And what's really cool, and there's no way other than God's designing of this that we could have orchestrated it this way because I assure you, Pastor Steve and I did not collaborate on the preaching schedule. But he assigned the text today that is a direct complement to what I had the privilege of preaching on the last time I was here. So what we get to do today is actually expand on the ideas that we built between Scott and I just a handful of weeks ago. So if you remember those things, or if you're new here and you're thinking, I want to know more about that, go back and listen to Scott's message and that message that I was here just a few weeks ago and preached, because this will now make one big, really cool, really deep idea. And I assure you, you will know God better as a result. So this morning, we're not going to talk about the greatest commandment specifically, but maybe more precisely, what we're going to do is look at why Moses, in Deuteronomy 5 and 6, saw fit to repeat this very specific instruction again. There's a reason Moses said this here, and we need to know what that is. So we're going to start in Deuteronomy 5 and build our way forward to understand that. So let's start then in verse chapter 1, and in chapter 5, verse 1, and go into this. It says, and Moses summoned all of Israel and said to them, hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb 
Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire. While I stood between you and the Lord at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire, but you did not go up into the mountain. So what we find here is something very specific. We find that Moses has called all of Israel together, and he began to remind them of events that have transpired previously. What we know about the book of Deuteronomy is it's really Moses, by and large, repeating himself. Deuteronomy takes place in about the last five weeks of Moses' life. He's getting ready to trans transfer his authority to Joshua. And Moses now wants to remind Israel, how did we get here? What are the really significant things we need to remember before new leadership takes over and God takes you to a new place? So Deuteronomy 5 and 6 has Moses specifically reminding Israel of a very particular event that happened, as he said, at Mount Horeb 40 years prior. So Moses is covering a gambit of things. He's not just like, oh, you know, we should talk about this. He's reminding Israel of very precise events that's important for us to know. It's important when the Bible repeats himself, when a writer of the Bible repeats himself, it's a significant thing. So we should approach this text with a level of significance and see what of this covenant is important. So we can read this as Moses reviewing for people things that they have heard before. Moses' words were very specific. This wasn't the covenant with your fathers. You were there 40 years ago. This is with you. You, Israel, all of you standing here must pay attention. So Moses then continues in chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. Moses said that he stood between God and Israel as something of a mediator. And it says in the text that God spoke to them face to face, literally out of the fire. Now, this didn't mean that they saw the face of God. Because again, this was a giant inferno surrounding a mountain as the text describes it. What, what the language here means is it's more like they're having a direct conversation. Like right now, we see each other face to face. But this is more like God saying, I had a conversation with you. But here again, we find that the Bible speaks to us in words that we understand. What this really means is God was having a very specific, very direct, one-sided conversation with Israel. Do these things. God spoke out of a giant flame. We've seen God speak out of fire before. We've seen that a few times in the Bible, in fact. But what the Bible tells us here is as God spoke out of this inferno surrounding Mount Horeb, Israel was very, very, very afraid. I would submit to you, if you imagined fire surrounding your favorite mountain, maybe some of you like to go to Colorado or somewhere else, if God spoke to you out of a giant fire-surrounded mountain, you may be concerned. Israel had a reason to be very concerned. We know that Israel's um, reputation of consistency is dubious at best. So for God to speak out of an inferno, this would be alarming. And Israel had some very specific requests of that, but we'll get there. The people of Israel, as Moses reminded them of this in Deuteronomy 5, they would have been painfully aware of the precise moment in time that Moses was drawing them back to. He was taking them back for us what would have been Exodus chapter 20. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, it literally says, And God spoke 
all these words. Anytime God himself speaks in scripture, it is a very big deal. God spoke creation into existence. God speaking here is important. So here they are at Horeb, right? And God starts instructing Israel. And those instructions that God starts giving out of this inferno are the Ten Commandments. So you can imagine the Ten Commandments booming out of a giant flame-engulfed mountain. Things would not be going so well for Israel in this exact moment. That's what Deuteronomy 5 is describing. That is what Moses is reminding Israel of. Deuteronomy 5 describes this event. Let me read to you Exodus 20, 18, and 19. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled in fear. The words here would illustrate like teeth chattering, knee knocking, we are very, very afraid. They would have been absolutely trembling as it says. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us for we will die. They were so afraid of the word of the Lord. It was so overwhelming for them. They didn't want God to talk to them again. They're like, Moses, you teach us. We'll listen to you. Just don't let him talk again. Oh, that we fear God that way. This is one big reminder. Moses wanted the people's attention, and he wanted them to remember this. And then what Moses does in Deuteronomy 5 is he proceeds to reteach literally the rest of Exodus 20. He reteaches them the Ten Commandments 40 years later in Deuteronomy 5, 6 through 21. And as a neat little aside here, we actually find out what happens next. In Deuteronomy 5, it doesn't tell us this in Exodus 20, but in Deuteronomy 5, we learn some really neat new things. We find that Moses and God had a conversation right after God boomed out the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. God actually commends and like he, he encourages Israel through Moses after this whole interaction where they say, Moses, you be the one to teach us. What God says here is they have a healthy respect and a healthy fear. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 5, 28 through 31. And the Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. This is Moses. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in what they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep my commandments that it will go well with them and with their descendants forever. Go and say to them, return to your tents. But you, God says to Moses, but you stand here with me, stand here by me, and I will tell you the whole commandment and the statutes and the rules that you shall teach them, that they may do them in the land that I am giving them to possess. So we go back in Exodus 20 when Moses left Israel's presence. Moses went and joined God on the mountain and God commended Israel. What's interesting about this, and some Bible scholars theorize about this portion of scripture, is they assert, and there's no way we can really know this, but they assert this might have been very new information to Israel. They were very privy to the commands that Moses was teaching from God. But they very well may not have known all of the contents of the conversation that Moses and God had. And it could be that here, 40 years later, that Moses tells them a little bit of the conversation he had with God, where he commends and reminds them to be faithful, to have that kind of reverent fear all the time. What Moses was doing in, in sharing this was kind of one more punch on this, like, 
you need to be faithful. You need to always fear the Lord as you did here. Starting in Deuteronomy 5, 32 and 33, the language Moses uses, it kind of transitions us back to the present. So Moses is no longer, at this point in the passage, reminding Israel of Exodus 20. He's now talking to them right now, giving his final instructions, transitioning into chapter 6, which is where we find our bottom line for today. So let's read chapter 6, verses 1 through 5 together. Now this is the commandment, the statues and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I commanded you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, not them, you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Moses is being quite clear. He was teaching Israel what a follower of God looks like. First, it is lifelong reverence to God. That's what he says in Deuteronomy 6.2. Lifelong reverence. And what's the evidence then of lifelong reverence? It is fruitful, desirous obedience to God's law, so much so that you communicate it to the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. All of this to understand our bottom line verse for today, which is Deuteronomy 6.4. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then the greatest commandment, which Scott and I unpacked a couple of weeks ago, verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, honestly, I got here in my preparation, and I thought to myself, where do I go from here? Because this in and of itself is like a sermon. We could, we could just land here and talk about the history and the context, and that would be well worth our time. The passage isn't confusing, but it's very, very dense. That one single verse, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, has massive implications, like three different, very distinct implications. And again, as we were singing this morning, each one of the songs that we sang tackled one of those implications. It was super encouraging. And I would encourage you as you reflect on the time that we spend together today to meditate on the songs that we sang as an act of heartfelt worship and to think about Deuteronomy 5 and 6 in that process as well. Deuteronomy 6.4 is chock full of theology. So we're going to go through some significant portions of theology. We are going to drill into Deuteronomy 6.4. And what I'm going to do, instead of just picking one of the three things, I'm going to give you a flyover view of all three. I honestly think I would do you a disservice if I just picked one, because literally this could be a three-part sermon in and of itself. Just this one verse. So I'm going to tell you everything that I possibly can in the very short time that we have together. And I hope that you leave with a better, more expansive understanding of who God is. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The bottom line for today is this. God is the only deity that has ever existed. And we need to live like it. He's the only God ever. There is no other God. We need to live like it. 
So we're going to examine this from three different perspectives. The first is this, the perspective of Israel, the perspective of the Jews, okay? In Jewish tradition, Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9 is a part of the Shema or the Shema or Shema, depending on how you pronounce the word. I'm going to say Shema because I looked it up and I listened to it and that's what it told me. (laughs) It's part of the Shema. And it's translated, the word is translated literally to mean hear or listen. And depending on what version of the Bible that you have in front of you, in Deuteronomy 6.4, you'll either see the word hear or listen in the text. Both are accurate translations. Um, and, they, and the entirety of the Shema then, this is a part of it, the entirety of it is Deuteronomy 6.4 and 5, Deuteronomy 11.13 through 21, and Numbers 15.37 through 41. And what that made up is kind of a daily prayer ritual in Jewish tradition and in Jewish culture. For kind of a, maybe a relationship to us, we could kind of think about this in terms of the Lord's Prayer. It's a, it's a similar approximation for our prayer purposes as this is for the Jewish culture. The thing about this passage itself is that the words are very, very tricky. When Moses calls Israel to hear, right, so he's calling them to hear, he then says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. However, in Hebrew, There is no verb for this verse. So what you find, remember, verbs are basically action words, right? There's no verb. In Hebrew, the statement is actually two sentences that are crammed together that literally consist of four nouns. And all the English teachers in the room now, their heads just went on tilt. Four nouns crammed together. In Hebrew, though, they would understand that. There's inferences in the language that we don't have. So because in English... That wouldn't make sense. What we do is we put the word is in there. And it helps us, in English, make better, sense, make better sense of the sentence. It helps us. But actually, it gets a little trickier from here. Because what you find is that the word is could be placed in a few different places. This verse does not have a specific way, and Bible scholars do not all agree on the specific way that it's put in here, but what I want to do, let me just give you a few ways so you see them for yourself, the way this could be read. The first is this, the Lord our God is one Lord. That's one way. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one. It's another way. Third, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Each one of those things has a little bit of a nuance to them. But let let me just say this, because we could get lost there, and I kind of don't want to. What I do want to say to you is this. We should all kind of aspire to be Bible nerds. Like, we should be fascinated by things like this. And it should make us want to read the Bible more. My encouragement to you is when you're doing your personal Bible study, get like a good user-friendly commentary. And any of the staff here at the church can help you We can recommend a commentary to you that is very user-friendly. My encouragement to you is learn how to read the Bible this way. If you read a good commentary by a good author, it's going to help you see neat things like this. We should desire to know things like this because it gives us a fuller appreciation of what's actually happening in the text. But let me say this because at the end of the day, there are a few significant realities that Israel would have heard. Okay, First, the term the Lord here is very important. It's actually the word Yahweh. Now, we've talked about Yahweh in our church many times before. Yahweh is one of the most, if not the most, sacred name for God. 
For that word to have even been written down, people would have had to bathe because it is that holy. No matter how it's translated, this statement is one of absolute, utter reverence because of the very words chosen. Even making this statement, using the word Yahweh, makes hero Israel the Lord our God. Yahweh is God. Yahweh is one. It makes it a massively big deal. Second, me either. Second, I'm not sure that there is necessarily a wrong answer here. Because no matter how you place the word is, it doesn't really overwhelmingly change the emphasis of the passage. At the end of the day, it is making a definitive, very distinct statement about the unity of God, the holy uniqueness of God. God is unmatched, is what it's saying. There is nothing else in all of existence that is like him. That is found in this passage regardless of where you, pray, you place the word is. What it's saying is this, there is no other deity in existence. God is the only God, has always been the only God, will always ever be the only God. Demons, Satan, are not gods. They're not deities. For Israel, what they would have heard here, because they lived in an era filled with other small g gods, one in particular would have been Baal. One that we're more familiar with throughout the Old Testament is Asherah. These other gods that Israel found themselves worshiping at times, what they would have heard here is God, Yahweh, is God. That's it. End of the story. Anything else is wrong. God is the only true God, and God is worthy of your, our worship. Amen. Yahweh's words and instructions, many of which outline, Moses outlines in detail, here repeating himself, are uncontradicted and uncontradictable. His promises are always to be believed. His warnings always heeded. That is what Israel in this moment would have heard. Yahweh is God, period. Now there's more to the Jewishness, the, the Israelite perspective here. And Pastor Steve and Wes Traber and a couple of other people who are very, very knowledgeable on this, they did a Bethel backstage. I would encourage you, if you're interested in the history of this, go and listen to that Bethel backstage. It's filled with nuggets that we don't have the opportunity to drill deeper into this morning, but it is available to you if that is an interest to you. But there's more big ideas in this text that I want to get to. The second is this, the aseity of God. What on earth is the aseity of God? It's another one of those kind of theological terms that is derived from scripture that we use to kind of conceptualize something. Aseity is actually a Latin word, and when you break it down into English, what it means is from one's self. So in addition to this verse simply using holy language, it is making a very definitive statement about the character and the substance of God. It's saying God is from oneself, meaning God is self-existent. He was not created. No one and nothing made God. God has always been. God will always be. The late Bible scholar, Dr. Gordon Lewis, he stated it so well. Let me read this to you. It says, God is underived, necessary, non-dependent existence. Understanding that God is non-contingent helps understand how God is unlimited by anything or infinite, free, self-determined, and not determined by anything other than himself, contrary to his own sovereign purposes. That's a dense thing, but for me what that does, 
is it takes me back to Genesis 1.1. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. That's, that's what we need to know. In the beginning, God. God was there. God initiated. God was there. God will be there. God, in the form of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, had perfect fellowship and perfect everything in the forever before creation began. God has always been. God will always be. Now, this is, this is difficult to, to wrap our minds around a little bit, but I, I would encourage you to think of it a little bit like this, okay? We're, we're made up of a substance, right? You can feel your arms. You can kind of feel your legs. You, some of you are sitting with your hands together. You feel yourselves. We're made up of a substance. The substance of God is, is different. We as humans were made in the image of God, right? We know that. The Bible tells us that. So we are made to reflect the substance of God, but we are not the same as God. We are a temporary thing. We are a temporary reflection of an eternal thing. God is eternal. God will always be eternal. We, in this temporary life that we have, are just that. Gordon Lewis continues, because I think this is helpful. He says, God's eternal nature is not totally other than time and not totally removed from everything in time and space. The time-space world is not foreign or unknown to God. History is the product of God's eternally wise planning, creative purposes, providential preservation, and common grace. God filled space and time with his presence, sustains it, and gives a purpose and value. The omnipotent and ubiquitous one is Lord of time and history, not vice versa. God does not negate time, but fulfills it. In it, his purposes are accomplished. In Christianity, then, eternity is not an abstract timelessness, but the eternal is a characteristic of the living God who is present at all times and in all places, creating and sustaining the time-space world and accomplishing his redemptive purposes in the fullness of time. So what we need to understand here, because again, this is very much the deep end of the theological pool, God exists in a different way than we do. We exist in a linear time, okay? We have a beginning and we have an end. But we can almost imagine that if I was to kind of stand in somewhat the place of God in this analogy, that God is holding the beginning of time and the end of time between his hands. This is time and space. This is Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. All of it's taking place like this, or maybe even it's like this would be better, where you can see God is just, he's just holding it all together. We can imagine God having infused himself in this. As he holds it together, as he sees it, he can interject himself at any point. God, as the scripture says, as Gordon Lewis explains, is just, God is self-existent and thus is able to contain creation in and of himself. Eternity, we, we, when we think about eternity, we kind of think about timelessness. We think, what are we going to do in heaven when we get there? You ever thought that? All right, so we know we're going to throw crowns. We know we're probably going to worship. We know that we're going to have fellowship. Like, we know a bunch of stuff, but, but time, right? Like, what are we going to do for all time? You ever thought that way? Yeah. What we learn here, what we can derive from Scripture here, time is not going to work that way. We need to conceptualize what we can know right now. What we know right now is we have a beginning, we have an end. God does not. Let me put it to you this way. I thought about this. I'm like, 
There's got to be an analogy for this, and I think I've got an imperfect one, so go with me here. How many of you have a Roomba? Who's got a Roomba? Anybody in the room have a Roomba? A handful of you. So the thing about a Roomba, it's like a motor, it's a robotic vacuum cleaner. And what a Roomba does, if it works well, <laughs> what a Roomba does is it's able to take the inventory of its environment. Okay, so I want you to imagine with me, you own a ranch house, single floor, because the Roomba and stairs doesn't go well. It's a little circular guy that just kind of trolls around your house vacuuming. You've got a ranch house. And God, as the builder of the house, he built this vast environment in which the Roomba is to live and work and fulfill its purpose. God, as the builder of the house, he knows there is a great wide world out there. But the Roomba was designed for the house. The Roomba was designed to vacuum the floor in the environment with its very particular parameters. And it can navigate its way through the parameters of its environment. If it's a good Roomba, it's going to hit the bed leg and then navigate a way around it. It's going to see a kitchen table or chair and it's going to navigate around it. It's going to sense the environment that it's in and fulfill its purpose within its environment. One day, the Roomba will be free to vacuum the world. <laughs> and that's where the analogy breaks down. <laughs> but the point is this, one day, God frees us. We're not confined to linear time and the house anymore. We get to join and understand eternity, but the Roomba is not designed to understand outside. It's designed to exist in a confined environment. Does that make sense? It's designed to fulfill its purpose in a linear place, and it does it well. My fellow Roombas, <laughs> may we fulfill our purpose well, knowing God is one, knowing we are responsible right now for space-time, knowing we are responsible for the time that we are in, and God is holding it all together, we don't have to. Let's keep going. The aseity of God reminds us God is self-determined, not bound by linear time. The third point, then, speaks to the nature of God himself. Examination number three, the Trinity is one God in three persons. One God, three persons. Yahweh is God. And Yahweh, despite being comprised of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three entities makes up one entity. One's, three kind of different substances, three different functions, three different persons, one God. They're one entity comprised of a different kind of relationship with humankind. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they interact with us in very different ways, and yet they are all one thing. God the Father rules and reigns from the throne of heaven and is sovereign over all. You can almost imagine God the Father as the one holding time-space together, holding it all between his hands. Jesus, the Son, he became human. He died for us and now stands in the courtroom of heaven advocating on our behalf. Praise God. The Holy Spirit, our helper, our counselor, as the Gospel and Romans 8.27 outlines, the Holy Spirit is the portion of God that God the Father sends to live in us and with us, counsel our soul. He is the one that illuminates our mind. He's the one that renews our mind, as the Bible says. He's the one that engages in the process of salvation with us and removes the scales from our eyes so that we can finally read the Bible and understand what it says. We can finally understand what God is doing in this life. 
The Holy Spirit is the one that journeys with us every single day. Jesus affirms the Trinity himself. There's scores of places we can go, but I searched and searched and searched, and I found one single statement where Jesus tackles the entire Trinity in like two verses. John 14, 26, and 27. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I, Jesus, am still with you. He's talking to his apostles. This is part of the Last Supper dialogue, this long thing that takes place between John 13 and John 17. He says, I have spoken these things while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send to you in my name, he will teach you all things and bring them to your remembrance, all that I have said to you. There in one sentence, in, two, or in one idea, two verses, Jesus discusses the roles of the entirety of the Trinity. Jesus affirms the existence of this. All three persons of the Trinity are referenced at varying points in Scripture doing different things. And again, this is a sermon in and of itself. What I just want to do is highlight this for you in two places very quickly. The first is this. We see the Trinity in the story of creation. In creation itself, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each have a role. In creation, God the Father spoke everything into being. Then we know from John 1, 3 and 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and elsewhere actually, that it was Jesus who carried out the creative decrees. God spoke, Jesus did. We know then that the Holy Spirit from Genesis 1-2 was present in a different way. Genesis 1-2 says he was moving and hovering over the face of the waters. Each portion of the Trinity was present and active doing something in the story of creation. And it's the same in the story of redemption. God the Father was the one who planned the redemption story. He is the one Jesus said he was being obedient to. When Jesus the Son, according to John 3.16, we actually get both. For God the Father sent his only Son, Jesus, to die. Jesus is the Son then who came and died for our sins. It is then the Holy Spirit that God the Father sends who causes us to become regenerated, who causes us to get saved, and as Jesus said, causes us to remember all the things that we learn about him. Each person of the Trinity is actively engaged with you and actively engaged with me. And even yet, kind of knowing all this, this is, this is a lot to know right here, the Bible still doesn't explain to us in its fullness how is God three in one. There are a million different analogies about this. If you googled analogy of the Trinity, may God have mercy on your soul and your search engine. If you use Safari, it will crash. I did it. I went there. There's a lot of analogies. But before that, let me, let me just say this. When Israel would have heard, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, what they would have heard here is a definitive statement of the unity of God. In Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6, they wouldn't have understood the fullness of the Trinity. They would have known, because Moses, you've got to remember, Moses is in the last five weeks of his life. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, which is Genesis to Deuteronomy. There would have been some awareness that God had a plural pronoun for our purposes attached to his character. They would have had some idea that God was a unity of things. This was a unifying statement to complement all of the other things that we've already talked about. They would have understood God is uniquely one. 
This is, one, this is actually something that modern-day Jews, modern-day Israelites, they, they don't fully agree with this. And again, I'll commend to you that you go to the Bethel backstage that Pastor Steve and others recorded. They talk about this at great length. But what I want to do is I want to share with you some of these analogies because at the, at the very least, what, they'll be, what they will be is helpful for you to just kind of conceptualize the idea of the Trinity, okay? One of them is a triangle. In a triangle, you've got three sides, right? You've got God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And if you take away one angle, you know, you've got God the Father and God the Son, but if you take away the angle, it's not a triangle anymore. Does that make sense? It has to be all three for the triangle to be a triangle. And in this analogy, we would say that the Trinity acts as a triangle. Another analogy that you can use is an egg. An egg? Yes. Think about it. There are multiple components to an egg. There's an egg yolk, an egg white, and an egg shell. And each one makes up a component of the egg. You literally cannot have one without the rest. Even when you separate the eggshell from the yolk and the white, it's still an eggshell. Even when you bust all the components apart and you remove the yolk, it's still all egg. Does that make sense? You push these analogies too far and they break down, but the point is for us to kind of just grapple with the idea. Another one is water. Water can exist in a handful of different ways. We drink water. Water is liquid. We thank God turn water into coffee. Water is liquid. We can turn water solid and have ice. And then maybe some of you have gone to the Porter County or the Lake County Fair and your kids, they've got one of those fans that mists. You can kind of turn water into mist or a vapor, right? Again, it, it can exist in a bunch of different forms. Each one of those things is an imperfect analogy. The, the great Bible scholar Augustine, he had his own analogy as well. He said that the Trinity, trying to understand it, is a lot like love. With the concept of love, you have the lover, the one doing the loving. You also have the object of the love, and then the love itself that binds them all together. Bible scholars generally look at Augustine's analogy and think, that, that, that's pretty apt, that works. And it does, but even still, if you push on it too far, there are still cracks in the analogy. So if we're dealing with imperfect analogies, I thought to myself, self, why don't you invent one for yourself? So I did. <laughs> You'll note already, if you get close to me, this is a Batman vest. I have an affinity for sci-fi things, so I only thought it would be appropriate today to talk about the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> right? The thing about the Incredible Hulk is he's one entity. You've got scrawny scientist, super smart, Bruce Banner. You've got highly emotional Green Hulk. Now, those of you that have seen all the Marvel movies, you're thinking, he's going to go to, like, Smart Hulk next. Nope. Not going to do that. I'm going to talk about Joe Fixit. You're like, who's Joe Fixit? He's the Gray Hulk. You'll know if you study Marvel's history, which don't, that the Hulk was originally supposed to be gray. And what happened, because technology for making comic books back in the day was so poor that the ink bled through, and instead of Hulk being gray, he turned green. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Green Hulk should not exist. And yet, due to a fluke of printing technology, back in the day, he does. Well, what happened in the 90s then is Marvel kind of resurrected the idea of Gray Hulk, but they gave him a different personality, and they called him Joe Fixit. So you've got scrawny scientist, super smart Bruce Banner, You've got emotional, angry Green Hulk who has almost no rationality. His only thought is, by and large, smash. 
And then you've got Joe Fixit, who's strong, but has none of the intellect at all. He's just like us. He can reason and rationale, and he can talk and do things. He doesn't quite have all of the Hulk's super strength because he's not as angry. And it's interesting because all of them are still one thing. They all come from Bruce Banner. They're all Hulk. They're just different facets of one big thing. And they express themselves very, very differently. They, the Hulk manifests himself. If you study the comic books in great detail, which again, don't. But if you do, you see that different Hulks come out for different purposes at different times. Different Hulks are utilized. Again, this, these are imperfect analogies, but they help us see God is three in one. There are three different expressions of God, three different persons that make up one entity. So we've unpacked all this. It's a lot of deep theology, right? All from one little verse. And I think it, it braves the question, what on earth do we do with this? How do we take, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and do something with it? The application for Israel at that point was very specific. I'll come back to that in a minute, but for us, it's, it's a little bit different. Think about this with me. God is vast. He's huge. He's supreme. He's a savior, right? He's not bound by space and time. And in that way, he's beyond imagination. He is three in one. We understand God differently than the Israelites of Deuteronomy 5 and 6 ever could. They didn't have enough information for us, for them to understand God the way that we do. Because we have John 3.16. For God so loved you. For God, supreme, almighty, three in one, the only deity in all of space and time, he loves you. He says he loves you. The vast Trinitarian God of existence, matter, space, and time loves you. And he has a personal, invested interest in you. That's why we gather to express worship to the God who has an interest in us as well. I want to challenge you with this. This is a perspective question. Remember our bottom line. Our bottom line is God is the only deity that has ever existed and we need to live like it. So I want to ask you this question. How would my life, how would your life be different if I lived like this was true? How would my life be different if I woke up in the morning and my thought was, the holy God of the universe has a specific interest in me. The God who sent a portion of himself, a three-in-one God who sent a portion of himself, he went and died for me. How is that going to change your drive to work? How is that going to change how you endure physical pain? How is that going to change how you parent? This goes back to some of what we spoke about last time. And it is exactly what um, Moses instructed Israel. When all of this was done, when, he, when Moses explains all of this, what does Moses say to do? He says, love the Lord your God. Love him with everything. Love him with your heart, your soul, and your might. On these commands today shall be your heart. 
You shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit down and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You will bind them as a sign on your hands. You shall have them on the frontlets of your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. How often is this truth about who God is on your mind? Because if it is, it, would, it should change how you think about everything you do. It should change how you approach every conversation you have, every interaction you engage in. We must live like the only deity who has ever existed has a personal interest in us. It should change us. I hope it changes you.